There is no escaping influence. All human beings affect those around them, sway them, shape them, sand edges, provoke, inspire. You may not want the power, but you cannot surrender it. This is a story about leadership, about stewarding the inevitability of osmotic impact. It's a story about repentance and forgiveness and the tragic beauty of impermanent faith. And it's a story about what happens when someone who's chosen to leave God changes their mind. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Mount Zion thunders. The hooves of two dozen horses drumming the earth, equine eyes wild as their riders urge them out beyond the walls of Jerusalem, north threading the hills of Benjamin, west toward the coastal plain beside the sea, east into the verdant trench that channels the Jordan River, south toward the desert canyons carved from the very bones of the earth. Each mount carries a satchel bearing the word of the king, fresh ink on woven papyrus calling the elders of Judah to a gathering that will change the course of history, stem the tide of a war between Israel and him. That is the hope. In the palace, perhaps, the royal secretary, Shaphan, looks to King Josiah. Will they come, my lord? Josiah, face grave and showing more than his 26 years, looks out the window at the billowing dust cloud left by his messengers. The question is not, will they come, Shaphan, but what will happen when they do? Soon, the temple courtyard swells with the presence of Judah's clan leaders and statesmen, the governors of districts, the priests, the Levites, and the citizens of Jerusalem, old, young, and everything in between. Sunlight glints reflected off the bright white linen garments of the Levites and the gold and jeweled vestments of the priests. A wide-eyed father, perhaps, smiles at his little girl, not so little as the last time they stood here. Remember when I brought you to his coronation? He asks. She grins. The very weapons of David. Yes. And, it seems, David's very spirit alive in this one. Indeed, Josiah's devotion to Yahweh has been a welcome echo of David's heart. 
But the people of Judah have been slower to respond to Yahweh's call. And with the recent discovery of the Book of the Law, the depths of the nation's disobedience became unnervingly apparent to Josiah. Huldah's prophecy confirmed Yahweh's anger. The words disaster, curses, and wrath ricochet in the king's mind. Now, to bring the elders and the people into an awareness of their situation and to throw themselves at Yahweh's mercy. Josiah stands at one of the great bronze pillars flanking the temple's entrance, opens the scroll, and begins to read. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and the laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of Yahweh your God that I give you. He continues reading for a long time. The panic he felt when Shaphan read these words to him days ago spreads now to the elders and the priests and the people. We have left these things entirely undone. Our fathers and our fathers' fathers transgressed the law of Yahweh. We will be destroyed. And perhaps they will. But King Josiah leads his people in a covenant ceremony nonetheless. He stands before them and pledges to follow Yahweh alone, to keep his commands with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in the book. And then the people, they wholeheartedly echo the king's promise and enter into covenant themselves. And how does Yahweh experience all of this? These wayward children having the gall to come home after all these years, pig slop dripping from the fabric of their souls, crying their tears and making their promises. How does this father respond to their audacious request for the miracle of his forgiveness? It would seem that he runs to them. All of heaven, in fact, rejoices at the return of these sinners. Cosmic corridors echo with joy. Grace falls like rain. The next morning, Josiah wakes with a long list on his mind. The work of repentance is not yet done. Stone, timber, and gold careen down the deadly slope of the Kidron Valley. An Asherah pole splinters and Baal's horns snap, unblinking bovine eyes tumbling lower, lower, tons of debris destroying the grapevines planted on shallow terraces, ripping apart the fruit and staining everything crimson. Atop the eastern wall of Jerusalem, Josiah wipes sweat from his forehead takes a breath and heaves alongside Hilkiah the high priest and a team of straining men. Up, up, over the rampart and into the ravine, remnants of the cult prostitute housing now demolished. 
the garments for Asherah woven by her fawning attendants flapping in the wind as gravity yanks them toward the earth. Pagan altars erected by Ahaz and Manasseh, giant horse statues built for the sun god Shamash, ripped from their foundations at the temple entrance and now galloping in frenzied somersaults down the mountainside, their golden chariots crashing behind. Then, in the valley, the king's men on the terraces stacking debris, throwing torches onto the piles. Chimneyed smoke, chewing flame, black char. The ashen, disintegrated remains of gods and monsters. Hell rages. The temple is finally cleansed. Ash billows and clings to the linen tunics of the Levites as they scoop it up, dump it into urns, and load the urns onto carts. These remains will be scattered. But not yet. And not here. They beat what's left of the Asherah pole into dust with clubs and hammers, spread it out over the graves of its worshippers in Jerusalem's cemeteries. Josiah rails at his forebears' wickedness, the darkness brought by their enduring influence. Flashbacks of his campaign six years ago play in his mind, surely. These weeds, still not uprooted. Josiah turns his attention then east over the Kidron, where a half mile across the ravine, an olive-studded hill rises toward the sky. Thanks to these reforms, it will come to be called the Mount of Corruption. At its peak, a cluster of shrines pay homage to Ashtoreth, Chemosh, Molech, and Milcom. Built generations ago by a wayward Solomon and left festering by his successors, seeping otherworldly pus for all these years. The king leads his men up the hill, rips down sacred pillars, fells one malignant Asherah pole after another. Amongst the rubble, they dump piles of human bones, creating a necropolis amongst which no priest would dare to sully himself. Josiah looks back from the hill, perhaps, across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem, So many souls, so vulnerable. The city walls stand tall and strong, wrapped around the people bustling inside. Their hearts have no such defenses. Offense, then. Josiah will move out beyond the city with his team. There are places he missed on his last circuit. And elsewhere, the darkness has regrown. What follows is a relentless canvassing of Judah's reaches. From Geba in the north to Be'er Shabbat in the south, every place incense still rises in unholy ovation to the sun, moon, and stars. The fire pits the idol priests call Tophet, the bottoms of those pits full of babies' bones, 
beautiful little children incinerated as offerings to Molech and Adramelech and Anamelech. Josiah wrecks the pits. No more. Demons beat their chests. Banshee wails echo through Hadean halls. The prince of darkness licks his wounds, steals himself, plots with unholy imagination. But Josiah is not finished. Driven by outrage that is in turn driven by love, he sets his sights to the north. Alongside his force of Levites, warriors, and officials, he crosses the border into the kingdom of Israel and lays waste to the high places of Samaria. The priests of Baal and Asherah scream, terror in their eyes and silence on the lips of their gods as the king's men slaughter them in their wicked temples and burn their corpses on the altars. But before the crusade in Samaria, Bethel, a city on the seam between Judah and Israel, and in so many ways, the beginning of all this. Josiah's horse gleams with sweat after the 10-mile ride from Jerusalem. Griffin vultures circle beneath gray clouds that slide across the sky. The king dismounts and shakes his head, turning perhaps to his team. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, do you remember the chronicles? The men nod. Three hundred years ago, he built this central altar to Baal, a malevolent grandfather to all of Israel, soaking our people's blood with taste for these lies. Their horses snort and stomp. Today, it ends. They wrap ropes like nooses around the structure's stone pillars, tie them off on their saddles, and pull at the reins. The men crack their whips and spur their animals with staccato shouts. The lions pull taut and suddenly fall slack as rock topples and shatters. A few Levites are ready with brush. They pile it around finely carved chairs and paneled walls and yet another Asherah pole, then set it aflame. Josiah gazes up at the great rising smoke column, a towering cloud of presence. Bethel, once Egypt reincarnate, now Sinai revisited. No one like Yahweh. That's what Moses told Pharaoh. Why can't my people see this? Finally, Josiah moves his eyes from the plume. He notices a cluster of strange rocks on a nearby peak. Squints. Tombstones. Go, he gestures to a few men. Those will be the buried priests who sacrificed here. They loved these altars. Let's reunite them. In minutes, the Levites have pierced and piled Bethel's soil, exhumed the skeletons of the corrupt priests, and cast them onto the flaming altar. Another now-forbidden necropolis. More salting of these religious fields. Somewhere in all this, 
as a trinity of heat and oxygen and bone spits tongues of fire. The word of Yahweh, written centuries ago in heaven, is traced by fulfillment's finger. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On this altar, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be exhumed and burned on you. Does Josiah know he lives out this prophecy? Perhaps he does. Perhaps this entire campaign has been less the brainchild of a zealous reformer and more an obedient response to the command of Yahweh himself. Josiah as musician, the one true God as maestro composer. And then a strange coda in this symphony. The smoke attracts a crowd from the city, of course. Men and women stare, murmur to one another, hold their children close as the fire rages. Josiah walks over to join his men at the graves and canvasses the ground, looking for overgrown headstones. But then, what is this? The same carved limestone, but not at all like the others. Larger, less gravestone, and more monument. He waves over one of the townspeople. What is this memorial? he asks. The man's eyebrows rise. He nods and responds, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things that, that you have done to the altar of Bethel. What is this like for Josiah to hear? What does he feel knowing now that the path he's walking was preordained, that everything he's done in the last 90 minutes was authored not now, not by him, but centuries ago by the Almighty? That his name was on Yahweh's lips before he was even born, a strange and wondrous thing, surely, but perhaps less shocking for a king, this man who, at eight years old, stood in the shadow of the temple and felt the weight of Israel's crown on his head. It would make sense that divinity's gaze might rest on the royals who led Abraham's children, that Yahweh's pen might compose a scene of a monarch's life generations before it happened. Kings are one thing, but what if, what if this were true for others? That they were crafted according to an ancient plan to do specific things, good works that God prepared in advance for them to do. What a wonder that would be. It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things that that you have done to the altar of Bethel. Hearing this, the king reaches out his arm just before a Levite's shovel plunges into the grave. No, let him rest. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. But there are two bodies in this grave. The man of God from Judah and an old wayward prophet who, when he heard of the coming judgment, asked his sons to bury him with this Judean, 
eleventh hour allegiance to Yahweh made manifest in a desire to be close to someone who was close to the true God. And so, while the piled priests burn, this one rests in the bosom of another. Escape by association. You want to do all of this? We're going to do all of this. Josiah smiles at an incredulous Shafan and a dozen bewildered court attendants. I've been reading the book. Listen to this. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of Yahweh your God because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. It's perfect timing. Aviv is next month, the anniversary of our freedom, the feast of the Passover. When is the last time our people celebrated according to Yahweh's law? I, a long time, I suppose. Exactly. And now is the time to recommit ourselves to the festival, now that the land has been rid of what is detestable. An empty cistern does not stay empty, Shefan. We must ensure it's filled with good water. We must show the people how to worship Yahweh. If the young king shares his idea like this with his secretary, Shefan surely looks again at the notes and pushes back, Your Majesty, read what comes next. Josiah lifts the scroll. Uh, Sacrifice as the Passover to Yahweh your God, an animal from your flock or herd, an animal. Shefan holds up Josiah's notes. This is not that. The king smiles. It is just more. Unceasing preparation consumes the next several days. Attendants, stewards, butlers, servants, gatekeepers, chamberlains, pages, clerks, ushers, wardens, purse-bearers, bakers, cup-bearers, chefs, the keeper of the wardrobe, seamstresses, the entire palace works around the clock, feverishly carrying out the royal commands. This will be a feast for the ages. At the temple, King Josiah stands before Hilkiah and a throng of Levites. Today, we begin again. You will no longer languish in the flotsam of a broken temple amidst the wreckage of a religion that has failed Yahweh and failed our people. You will do good work. Your work. And when you do it well, our God will smile. Something like this. And cheers from the men of Levi, surely. Then Josiah says these words, Put the holy ark in the temple built by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. You do not have to carry it on your shoulders anymore. What does Josiah mean by this? Some who hear the story of this day centuries later will surmise that these remarks might accompany a ceremonial reenactment of the installation of the Ark of the Covenant. The holy chest brought out and then back in again to mark recent expunging of all that sullied the temple. Others, though, will wonder if perhaps a group of Levites had smuggled the Ark out of the desecrated place of worship during the days of Ammon or Manasseh, hiding it and 
moving it and hiding it again, protecting it, protecting the nation from the consequences of the Ark's violation. If it's the latter, King Josiah looks out at the Levites on this day, asking them to bring it back, asking them to trust him, to share with him the burden of spiritual leadership. You don't have to carry it on your shoulders anymore. And then the king tells the Levites, Passover is fast approaching. When it is time, you will slaughter the lambs. So consecrate yourselves and make preparations to carry out the word of Yahweh through Moses. Cheers again, surely. The fourteenth day of Aviv dawns crisp and cool. The beginning of spring, new life budding on every branch. Josiah wipes a tear from his eye, perhaps, as he looks out at the courtyard. A sea of white, the linen garments of the Levites, the wool of the lambs, all cast golden in the morning light. Who am I? He whispers, perhaps, echoing David's prayer. And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Decades ago, King Hezekiah led the nation in a celebration of the Passover and donated 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep, modeling storied generosity. Josiah has given 3,000 bulls and 30,000 sheep and young goats. Every precious life, an atonement for another family's sin, every lamb a bridge between my people and my God. The young king beams. And he's not alone. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, the senior priests of the temple, have given 2,600 sheep and 300 cattle to be sacrificed for their fellow priests. Konaniah and his brothers Shemaiah and Nethanel and Hashbiah Jael and Josabad, the officers of the Levites, donated 5,000 sheep and goats. 500 cattle, too. It seems Josiah's generosity and devotion have proven contagious. As the sun climbs further, the air warms and it becomes clear the people of Jerusalem received the king's invitation. The courtyards swell further with thousands and thousands of residents but that is just the beginning. Josiah sent word to all of Judah, to the northern kingdom as well, and they've come. Josiah tears up again, surely, as he looks out at once estranged Israelites gathered again, talking and laughing and uniting in song. The descendants of Asaph, storied poet, singer, musician who sang with David himself, begin a melody they've prepared. The sound rises from the Temple Mount like incense and then grows thicker as one voice and then another and then a dozen and three hundred more women from Benjamin, men from Naphtali, a, a clan here from Reuben join the chorus. 
Jacob's family, all seated at one enormous table of reunion, lifting their praise to Yahweh. At first, Josiah can barely slip a word past the emotion in his throat. But the dam breaks and the king's own praise comes flooding in. The perfect moment, perhaps, in an old song of David's. The king rejoices in your strength, Yahweh. How great is his joy in the victories you give. And then, the sacrifices. It feels like there must be 10,000 of them. Turbaned priests in white linen transfer their weight to their knees atop prone lambs, pinning them to the ground. They grip the animal's jaws and lift the heads, pulling the necks taut. Blades rise skyward and then plunge into the lamb's throats and slice outward, severing the jugular. In a flash, Zion becomes a volcano of blood. The ancestors of Aaron hold basins beneath the lambs, catching hemoglobin, white blood cells, platelets, plasma, oxygen, antibodies, enzymes, hormones, fat particles, glucose, iron, neutrophils, monocytes, antigens, every crimson drop a potion of animation, more precious than rubies. The sheep slump in the absence of this elixir. Death, the price of Israel's sin. But merciful death, lambs instead of sons and daughters. For every family, a lamb from the king, given for the salvation of the people. Levites take each animal after it's slaughtered and begin the labor-intensive process of skinning. Meanwhile, the priests take the blood and splatter it onto the altar, its four corners bathed red. The lifeblood drips to the ground and seeps over the courtyard stones and races through the grout lines, tributaries branching from this river, reaching like bronchioles across lungs. Jerusalem gasps to life, forgiven. The sacrifices are butchered and fire consumes the offerings. So many offerings. Endless waves rotated in and out and in and out atop the altar. The smell of roasting meat billows in clouds throughout the city. Smaller fires dot the streets, heating pots and kettles and bowls. Every vessel culled from kitchens, brought to scattered temple staff, and now bubbling with boiled elements of the sacrifices, soon to be shuttled to the various family feasts. They're so engrossed in facilitating the people's sacrifices, the priests barely notice the sun setting. It's dark when they finally sit down to their own sacrificial meals, ready and waiting for them, thanks to the Levites. The singers, too, chorus their praise until nightfall without any concern of preparing their sacrifices. The Levites have taken care of them as well. And all this is just the beginning. According to Yahweh's command in the Book of the Law, the people will celebrate the Festival of Unleavened Bread for an entire week. It's an enormous production and incredibly well-organized thanks to King Josiah, the High Priest Hilkiah, 
the senior priests and the officers of the Levites, all of them invigorated by good work, holy purpose, and a new beginning. Yahweh smiles. The smoke rising to heaven smells so sweet. But it's not the oxidized remains of spotless lambs. The smoke that brings gladness to Yahweh's eyes is the posture of his people's hearts. They've come home, and he delights to feast with them. When the story of Josiah's reign is written down, the chronicler will pause when he gets to this epic feast. He will go into uncommon detail, painting an elaborate portrait of this moment of penitent worship and then offering this superlative declaration. No Passover had been observed like it in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. None of the kings of Israel ever observed a Passover like the one that Josiah observed. Josiah will rule Judah for another 13 years, 31 in total. A long time for someone who's just 39 years old when he dies. The king's life will be cut short in a fabled valley called Megiddo. He'll get word at the palace about Egyptian forces traveling through Judah on their way to Carchemish to assist Assyria in a final stand against the newly forged empire of Babylon. Josiah will march his troops north to fight Pharaoh Necho as an act of opposition to the hated Assyrians. And although Necho urges Josiah to disengage, even sharing that Yahweh himself sent Egypt on this mission, Josiah, in an uncharacteristic display of truculence, will order his soldiers to attack the Egyptian army, and in minutes find himself mortally wounded. He'll die a death eerily reminiscent of King Ahab's demise two centuries before, bleeding out in his chariot, his body riddled with arrows. But according to Yahweh's word through Huldah, Josiah will be brought back to Jerusalem and buried in the tomb of his ancestors. His eyes, mercifully, will not see Judah's coming abandonment of the covenant and the horrific destruction Jeremiah will lament in his writings. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah will come to the palace to say goodbye to his longtime friend, the boy who was a king while he was a boy who was a prophet. He'll hold Josiah's hand and cry and remember the beautiful things Yahweh did with their partnership, the laughter and meals they shared, their foot races and the impressions of the advisors and the prayers they prayed together. Jeremiah will remember, and Jeremiah will thank Yahweh for this friend, and Jeremiah will begin to hum, a melody that rises from his heart like incense, faltering and incomplete and beautiful. At Josiah's funeral, 
as his people mourned the loss of a king who brought them back to the Lord, Jeremiah will stand and sing. The fledgling dirge he began at Josiah's deathbed, now fully feathered, carrying Judah's grief to the heavens. Yahweh will grieve too, for Josiah's reforms will die with him. Dark days will soon arrive in Judah, Mount Zion bearing witness to unspeakable pain as the people inherit the fruit of their choice to leave him behind. The ground will quake as Babylon's siege towers rumble into view, houses will burn, and the walls of Jerusalem will crumble. The land itself will bear the scars of defeat for generations. But not forever. One day, about 600 years from now, a new king will stand atop the Mount of Corruption and look across the Kidron to Jerusalem. Thanks to Josiah's work, the shame of pagan worship will have faded from this particular overlook, and it will have come to be known by a new name, the Mount of Olives. This Judean will also be moved to tears by Jerusalem's failings, weeping as he stands there atop the hill. And then he will mount a donkey and ride triumphantly into the city, where he will cleanse the temple and do everything in his power to lead the people back to Yahweh. In fact, it will be this mission on his lips when, in the cool of spring, he breathes his last, staining the ground red just as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. And the whole world will gasp to life. Forgiven. Hey, Justin here. Thanks for listening to the conclusion of The Regent and the Boy King. I hope it blessed you. If you haven't heard, the team here at Hazefire Studios is planning our first ever Holy Ghost Stories live tour here in the U.S. this spring. I'll be joined by none other than Kendall Ramsur, the composer of the incredible score you can hear in last season's telling of the Exodus. Kendall also happens to be an award-winning cellist, and so he will accompany me live as I usher you into the epic story of Moses, Yahweh, and the Exodus. Cities and dates will be announced very soon, so be on the lookout for that. Follow Holy Ghost Stories on Instagram if you're not already, and make sure you're signed up for the latest. That's the email I send out every couple of weeks to our fantastic tribe of listeners. There's always behind-the-scenes stuff about these episodes, answers to the questions about what I made up and what I didn't, uh, cool stuff I've found around the internet, and helpful info about things like live shows and spring tours. This week, uh, I'm sharing an interview I did recently on a podcast about birds and hope, uh, both things that feature regularly on Holy Ghost Stories. You can sign up at holyghoststories.org or just click the link in the show notes. 
Now to the hundreds of you who give regularly to enable this show to exist, thank you. I can't believe the ways God is using our partnership to turn people's hearts to Him and draw them close. Speaking of partners, let's tip our hats to the incredible folks we call the Tours, who give at the highest level over on Patreon. Steve, Easton, Sean, Joey at Creation to Revelation, Ryan and Kelly, Miranda, Amanda, Carrie, Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Jody, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. I'd storm the high places in Samaria with you guys. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and sound editing by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.